Revelation chapter 4. In the text today, the Apostle John receives an invitation to do something that's quite extraordinary, and that was to enter into heaven and to catch a glimpse, a preview of what eternity might look like. And then he was told to report that back to us. There have been precious few other individuals in history who have received a similar opportunity. John's was probably the most unique and the most complete. But in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet received a small vision that was similar to John's when Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain or two he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. The idea is he carried out the missions of God. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me. I am undone. And I would imagine that would be the sentiment that all of us would have. The Lord allowed the prophet Daniel to catch a small glimpse of this same vision. In chapter 7 he said, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. And his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. Revelation chapter 4. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there was seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like into crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast was like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts 
Give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Our Heavenly Father, and I pray the next few moments as we consider the throne of God, that, Lord, that this fantastical, incredible, honestly beyond the ability of words to comprehend or communicate, Lord, I pray that we would do our best to grasp the glory, the wonder, the majesty, the dominion of heaven and of your rule and reign. And that, Lord, having a clear vision of you, we, we might live better lives. We, we might live more purposeful lives. And Lord, may the, the, the center focus or the pride of our lives, Lord, always be you. And God, teach us to honor you and to worship you as is done in this chapter. And I pray for your help in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you for standing. Be seated. The book of the Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse, was given by inspiration of God to the Apostle John to grant to us and to the Apostle a glimpse into what the Bible calls in Revelation 1, things which must shortly come to pass. Revelation begins with the promise that those who would read this book, who would keep the writings contained in, would receive a, a promise, a blessedness. And this is not some kind of esoteric, mysterious promise just for the reading of the book, but rather is the promise and the blessing that you and I receive when we read what is real, when we read what is true, when we read about the, the glory of God and we align ourselves with those purposes and we live our lives for the glory and obedience of God, then as a result, you and I will experience and know a blessedness that we can have and know no other way. There is a coming eschaton, conclusion to all of life, all of history, all of eternity. And when you and I live in light of that coming day, of that coming reality, of the day that we will stand in this throne room ourselves with those ten thousands upon ten thousands, well, we live in light of that day, there is a blessing that will come to all that hear and practice the preaching found in the book of Revelation. When you and I begin to lay up treasures in heaven, by making God the priority of our lives, then a special, a special joy will be known in our lives. John begins God's revelation by writing in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are churches that existed in time and in history. They were in the regions of modern-day Turkey. These seven churches would have been in a, a circular route in Asia Minor, some upon the coast of the Aegean Sea and then into the inland parts of, again, what we call Turkey. We don't know why specifically these seven churches were chosen. Most likely they would stand as representative of all kinds of churches throughout the history of the church age and the age of grace. And to these seven churches, the Lord walked among them, the Bible teaches. He, he walked among, among them to strengthen them, to encourage them in their difficulties. But also he stood as sentinel to inspect and to give them encouragement in their adversity. These letters are inspired by a, a vision of Jesus walking among his churches. And, and what a sober thought today 
that as we've gathered and assembled here today, we, we are a church of God. And that we're not just here observing one another. We're not just here to watch those who sing. We're not just here to evaluate the preaching. We're not just here to do our part and go through the ritual routine. But we are here today not just um, doing church, but we're here today being inspected by God. I want you to know that God has an opinion about the way we do church. He has thoughts. He, he, he has he has desires for us today as we come into his presence and we assemble here today. We, we received much instruction from chapters two and three, and we, we now move to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. As we look at chapter four, John receives now a second vision. It's this, the second time that God asked him to see something. The first vision included these letters to the seven churches. And so we now we see in the first verses of chapter four, and after this, after this inspection of the churches, after the Lord walked among his churches and, and, and lent some commentary on things good and bad within them, the Apostle John now has another vision. And after this, John looked to behold, the Bible says, a door. And not just any door, but a door to heaven was opened to John. And the Bible says a voice likened to a great trumpet. And this is not the first time that we heard God's voice likened to a trumpet. This goes all the way back to the early pages of the book of Genesis. We find it through the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and now the book of Revelation that when, when God speaks, it's like the sound of many waters. It's like the sound of a great trumpet. The idea is there's a great resounding voice that speaks. And it speaks to the apostle John inviting John to step through this open portal into the other dimension that is the abode of God, the place we call heaven. It's the place the Bible calls the third heaven. The first heaven being the immediate atmosphere of this planet. The second heaven being the cosmos and universe of God. And then this third heaven is the abode of God, the place of heaven, the place that you and I will go to one day when we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we will go to and live with Him forever. This is the same place that the apostle Paul was taken in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. The Bible says he was caught up into paradise and he saw what he saw there. It was unexplainable. It, it, was, it was so incomprehensible that he was told then it was unlawful to speak. Don't even try to articulate this. And of course, John now is given permission and tries, but we can, we feel the strain of these words. And in a moment we'll read from the Ezekiel, how difficult it is to articulate the majesty of God in human language. And so John now is given permission to write. And he's talking about things. You're going to see things that lead to the what's next. What's after Revelation 2 and 3? What, what's about to happen in the future. I don't know when this event of Revelation 4 takes place. If this is something that's constantly ongoing, which no doubt it is, but also something specific here, as we see in chapter 5. This is somewhere between the writing to the seven churches and the tribulation, which will come in the future. And so we enter into consideration now of what John saw. But I want to remind you, as I often do, that the Word of God is written in a context. It was written in a time. It was written to a specific age, to, to a specific audience, to people, to be an encouragement in their circumstances that we find application for in our day. I want to remind you of the circumstance, the context of the initial readers of the book of Revelation. These churches have received not just a critique of how they're, how they're behaving and worshiping, but now they're being given insight. And so these churches in Asia Minor were going through an incredible persecution 
As attested to by the Apostle Peter in 1st and 2nd Peter, Daniel's preaching that on Sunday nights. I, I have preached through 1st Peter. That the audience of John were people going through an incredible difficulty, a great trial of affliction. Their, their very lives were often being threatened. They lived in a time of history when the Roman Empire had no love for, for Christians and for Christ. They saw them as a political threat, as one who worshiped a different, a different, a different God. Christians refused to worship the deities of Rome. They refused to burn incense to the imperial cult. And the, it was the imperial cult and the burning of incense to Caesar. In this case, maybe either Augustus or Nero or Domitian. But often that was the litmus test of faith. These Christians were ushered into these courts. And if they refused to burn incense, they often would face imprisonment, many death. And so they saw the throne, if you would, of Rome. They saw the might of Rome. They saw the power of Rome. So John offers them a different perspective, a different vision. And so Revelation 4 stands in amazing and stark contrast. It offers a throne room far mightier than the one that Rome presents. So in contrast, the rule and reign of Rome and its human emperors and power in the threat of its might. John provides for those beleaguered Christians of Revelations 2 and 3 a view into a far greater council, a far greater power, a far greater majestic glory, one of true sovereignty, one of great awesomeness, one of overwhelming might to encourage them in their circumstances that they belonged and had a greater citizenship, not just on the planet, but in heaven. And so John writes, in verse number two, John enters into the portal. He goes to the door, he enters into heaven. And unlike Paul, who was forbade to speak of what he saw, John is told to write. John is free to write and attempt to express what he sees. And it's interesting, as it's really in all the Word of God, there is no real great attempt to describe God Himself but rather the throne room of God, what surrounds God. The Bible tells us that uh, God lives in inapproachable light, that no man shall see God and live. God is too holy for our eyes to, 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 to see and perceive without being consumed. And so much of what John writes is about the throne room of God because the majesty there is so great. It is reflection of God that that is what John begins to write about. And so he does. And this is what John sees in verse 3. He says, from the throne came, it would be like a light of stones. And there's two types of stones referenced here, jasper and the sardine stone. Contemporarily, we would know these two stones as diamond and rubies. I don't know why, as I will say often in this text, why specific imagery is used. But we know this, diamonds are amazing. They are brilliant. They are multifaceted. They, they speak of unimaginable glory and wealth. They act as prisms. And when light hits a beautiful stone, a diamond stone, it is refracted and reflected in, in a greater brilliance. So no doubt the diamond speaks of the majesty and wonder of God. That light is filtered somehow also through the ruby, which reminds us of the great redemptive purposes of Christ. When we see the glory of God, we're reminded not only is He wonderful and majestic, but He's also the one who gave His blood and sacrificed for our sins. And so we see this beautiful red tones in the, in the glory and splendor of heaven reminding us of what God has done for us in salvation. 
and then somehow around this throne room of God that is emanating brilliant light, the Shekinah glory of God through the prism of diamonds and rubies. The Bible says round about the throne is a rainbow. And the rainbow, the word Lordy means in the, in the Greek, like a halo. And somehow this rainbow surrounds the throne, is about the throne, and it emanates as though it was a great emerald of green. And somehow then prisming out from that all the, the colors of the electromagnetic spectrum, all these other wondrous colors. The rainbow reminding us of the covenant of God, the promise that he made, that you and I are not destined for destruction, but salvation through the ark of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all a wonderful and beautiful picture of all and who God is. He is glory. He is wonderful. He is brilliant. He is Savior, and he is the promise keeper to all of us. And then in concentric circles round about the throne, the Bible says, there are 24 lesser thrones. The Bible calls them seats or chairs. And the word literally means throne or lesser thrones. And so you have the center of the Shekinah glory of God blazing through the prism of emerald and ruby and diamond, surrounded by this magnificent multifaceted rainbow with these 24 elders seated in proximity around him. I don't know who these 24 elders are. The Bible does not expressly tell us who they are. I suppose they could be angelic, um, an angelic host, a, spe a, a special kind of angel. I, I would choose rather to guess that these are glorified and redeemed representatives of humanity. The Bible says some clues here that they are dressed in white robes. Um, angels often are seen in white, but they also have crowns. And nowhere does the Bible say anything about angels having crowns. And they cast their crowns in time at Jesus' feet. And this is something that God tells us that we will do one day when we worship God. So these very well could be 24 representatives of humanity who have been saved and redeemed. It could be the 12 patriarchs plus the 12 disciples. I don't know, but I know this. They are there for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship and to glorify God. Unimaginable beauty and light. All the colors you could ever imagine. Radiating, reflecting through stones of diamond and ruby and emerald, surrounded by a rainbow, and a council of redeemed individuals who lift their voices in praise. And then the Bible says that from, from the area of the throne, John can't even quite fix it, there proceeds a great voice and lightnings and thunderings. This is reminiscent of God coming down to Mount Sinai when he spoke to Moses. In the book of Exodus, we see that God came down. And when they saw God come down, there was thunderings and there was lightnings and there was a great smoke and the mountain shook. The picture is one of overwhelming majesty, one of unimaginable might. Daniel described it as a throne that was like a fiery flame where fire streams issued forth from before him. In Genesis 19, 16, it says, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount. And the Lord descended in fire. 
We'll read a few moments from the book of Ezekiel where it describes the, the throne of God surrounded by, by lightning. It's just, it's incredible. Don't you wish you could get this picture? <laughs> There's seven lamps, seven torches. The word used for lamps or light here is different than we read in Revelation 1 where it described the seven churches being like lamps and Christ walking among them. Here these are, the word is like war torches. These are great fiery columns of light that are often associated in the Old Testament with the judgment of God. We are told that these seven, these seven torches of light are the seven spirits of God. God often represents himself in seven spirits, the Holy Spirit in seven manifestations, seven different multifaceted personality, if you will. In the book of Zechariah chapter four, we read of this, the book of Isaiah chapter 11, we, we sit by in reference twice to the seven spirits of God. There's one Holy Spirit that manifests himself in seven great characteristics. And so we'll see as we read through chapter five that this throne room contains a God in inapproachable light, the torch, the light of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 5, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ himself there as well. The Bible says, in roundabout surrounding and under the throne is a sea of glass. It's like crystal. And it's expansive and it seems to go off into eternity. So I, I, the, the picture is one of brilliance. You have the Shekinah glory of God in thunders and lightning and smoke, reflected through the prisms of these gems, in thundering and lightning, in this, this thick cloud of unimaginable glory, and this reflective pavement, <laughs> crystal clear. And it just magnifies and reflects all the glory that is already there. We know there's no sea in heaven, but this is a sea of glass, a great pavement whose purpose is to just reflect the wonder and the glory of God. And then the text goes even more fantastical. I don't know if that's a word or not, it just fits. The Bible says there's uh, four living creatures. Now the word creature here can be a little bit um, misleading. The words mean to be, or I might say this, they're living ones. And so these are in closest proximity to the throne. <laughs> the throne of God in unimaginable light with thunders and lightnings and brilliant light. And you have these elders out here surrounding and then close to God, as close as I suppose this can be. There are these, these four living beasts. The description defies imagination and description. They are a wonder. These creatures elsewhere in the scripture are identified as cherubim. In Isaiah, they are called seraphim. Those could be two different amazing orders of angels. They very well could be the same. But they are a special, unique, incredible creation of God. They're full of glory and might and brilliance 
whose job in the text is to stand sentinel to the throne, always ready to do the Lord's bidding and will. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after the fall of Adam, it was a seraphim that stood guard over the tree of life that would not allow man to reenter the garden. In Exodus, they were engraved to stand watch over the ark of the covenant. In Isaiah chapter 6, they lead the heavenly host in worship as they do here in Revelation 4. In Ezekiel chapter 1, they bear up the chariot of God as it ascends into heaven. We'll learn in Revelation chapter 6 and on that they are special instruments of God's judgment upon a fallen sinful world who refuses to worship God. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1 real quickly. Our preaching will be a little bit different today in that I'm trying to give you some, a backdrop. But I just want you to see that these are the same. John sees the same thing that was seen by Isaiah, by Daniel, by, by Moses, and here Ezekiel. This is a little bit lengthy, but I want, you to, I want you to try to grab a hold of what's being said here. In this book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a, a vision of the, of the throne room of God of a manifestation, but primary in this view is not God himself, but the seraphim round about the throne. And here's Ezekiel's um, staggering attempt to describe what he sees in Ezekiel chapter one, we'll begin our reading in verse number four. Ezekiel one, verse four. And I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, same imagery, and a fire enfolding itself. And the brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof as the color of amber in the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, the same creatures that John is describing. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of, of a man under their wings. And on their four sides they had four and had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. And they went every one straight forward. And for the likeness of their faces, <clears throat> they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion the, on the right side. And the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four also had the face of an eagle. The same description we see in John, Revelation chapter 4. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings on every one were joined one to another, and two they covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward, whether the one where the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was of like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of lamps, and went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and now the fire went forth, notice this, lightning, and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash and lightning. <laughs> Just stop. Like, wow. Like, what in the world? Well, hold on, that's not of this world. And Ezekiel's just like, what am I seeing? 
They're like these creatures with these wings, and they have the appearance of like a man and a, an eagle and an and a ox and a, and, a, and a lion. And they got eyes all about them, and they move like lightning, and, and there's these e enormous wheels that, that this, he'll describe later, just go up, and it's just overwhelming. It's just an incredible description. In other words, their majesty and their, and their own wonder is amazing. <clears throat> just as a side note, um, take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 28 very quickly. I, I want you to see something. Just, it's, it's not the point of the text today, but I'm connecting some dots. The wonder and the brilliance and the majesty of the seraphim defy description. And I believe in many ways they were there, again, like the stones, to reflect the magnificence and the glory of God. I think as God's glory emanates in a Shekinah glory, that somehow they, they, that strikes these amazing creatures who are there to worship Him. But it's, it's a fascinating note that in, in ages past, that Lucifer was once a seraphim. He was once an anointed cherub. That it was, and this is important because to understand the amazing nature of these creatures, in Lucifer's old mind, he was as greater, greater than God. And so in Ezekiel chapter 28, Satan is likened to the king of Tyre here, and, and the Lord describes him. And let's begin verse 11. He moves from this likeness of the king of Tyre to Lucifer himself. In verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, it says, And moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and saying to him, Thus said the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, they were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. So this is a description of what a cherubim, a seraphim was like. And every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and the gold, and the workmanship of thy tabrets. So, so amazing is the seraphim. They have the ability to create music within themselves from without themselves. No doubt to praise and worship God. And the workmanship of thy tabrets and the pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou was created. It says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, speaking of the glory of God, and I have set thee so, and thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, which is being described in John chapter 4, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. That's probably being described in chapter 4 as well. And the Bible says, And thou wast perfect in thy ways for the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. The point of this is this is the description of Lucifer's fall. It goes on to describe his, his seven I wills. But here's, here's what I want you to understand is these creatures, if we were to see them, we would be at a loss for words like Ezekiel was. I see fire and smoke and lightning and wheels and eyes and this, this unimaginable, incredible glory that's still nothing compared to God. The text describes them as being full of eyes before and behind. This is not meant to conjure something grotesque, but rather the fact that they are all seen, that they have an encompassing ability 
to stand vigilant over the purposes of God and carry it out. They see everything that is done under heaven. Verses 7 and 8 describe their likeness as a lion, a, the ox or a calf, a man, an eagle. Most likely representing the imagery of all of creation. They could stand for the characteristics of God in terms of strength and patience and wisdom and sovereignty. But the Bible describes them as each having two wings. And I find this utterly fascinating. Six wings. And, and here's what these seraphim did with their sex wings. Now think, they're in, they're in direct proximity to God in the throne room. And the Bible says that with two of their wings, they covered their feet. Why would they cover their feet? Because they're standing on holy ground. And with two feet, wings, they did fly, implying that they carried out the business of God. You have these creatures that are unimaginably beautiful, so full of glory and might and power. But even the height of this created being, with two wings, they take and they cover their eyes because they, they can't even look upon their own creator in his majesty and glory without being consumed. It's a wonder. It, 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 the, the splendor is amazing. And their purpose beyond others is to stand sentinel before God and his creation and to lead the angelic host in worship, crying out, holy, holy, holy. The same words that the prophet Isaiah saw. They speak of God's separateness, His otherness, His beyondness of creation. And they describe Him as Lord, implying a sovereignty over His universe, the sovereignty of the kings of the earth. They call Him God, the Creator. He, he is the one that made all things for His pleasure. And He is almighty, meaning omnipotent, all-powerful, unequaled, without peer, whose purposes cannot be thwarted. Psalms 33, 9, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalms 115, 3, but our God is in heaven and he doeth whatsoever he pleases. Isaiah 46, 10, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is what the seraphim, these angelic creatures lead in heaven. This praise of the holiness and otherness, the majesty of God. They sing a praise to God and when they do, Every time these, these four incredible creatures begin to praise God, the 24 elders begin praise as well. And their initial response is they all fall on their knees, on their face before God, taking their crown and casting her, laying it before the Lord's feet, singing out, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou art the creator of all things. And all things were created for thy purposes and thy pleasure. It is an incredible, unimaginable scene. Forgive me for not being able to do it justice. I don't know that human vocabulary allows us to accurately display or communicate the glory of God. It's even obvious in the writers of Ezekiel here in John, they're straining to use the terms available to them to describe the glory and majesty of God. And what are we to do with this? What are we going to do with it? Well, what we're seeing, and I want you to understand this, is what we're seeing is the preview of what heaven's going to be like. And God wants you and I to know that there is no other power, there's no other authority, there's no other purpose that we can give our suit, ourselves to that compares to the omnipotence 
and the wonder of God. As human beings, we are often tempted to yield our lives to the things of the world. We bow down at the altars of many things. We worship money. We worship celebrity. We worship politics. We worship athletes. We bow down and pay homage to the throne room of our own desires, our own purposes, our own selfish pursuits. We give ourselves to a thousand lesser things and standing in immeasurable contrast to the idol of self in this world stands the thrice holy God, the creator, the sustainer, and the source of the world, sustaining it in this very moment. And we would do nothing any greater with our lives than to fall at his feet and cry out, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Today we need to consider what the psalmist said. Who is likened to the Lord? Who is likened to the God who dwelleth on high? I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And I want you to look in verse number 21. Isaiah is trying to communicate, as I am today, a vision of the Lord. And Isaiah in verse 40, hear God speaking, says, 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, this, this great rainbow, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretches out of the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to be nothing. He maketh the judge of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? That bringeth out the host, the stars by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he is strong in power, and not one faileth. Why saith thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. To them have no might, he increased his strength. Even though you shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall not utterly fall. But they that shall wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not, and not faint. If you want to give yourself to something in this world, this is the throne you bow to. If you want your life to matter, this is the throne you bow down to. If you understand what's really important and real in life, this is the throne we bow down to. First Chronicles 29, 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that there is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. What is our response to this theology? I use that term deliberately, to this truth, to this reality of who God is. Well, let me ask you a question. What was the response in Revelation 4?
What did the four beasts do? What did the 24 elders do? What did the 10,000s times 10,000s do before God? What is eternity given to? In a word, worship. What do you think God wants from us today? See, we, we, we come here, not being critical, we go through our emotions, we do church. And I, I, I know we, don't, we can't see what John saw in the same way, but I, I'm telling you that is the reality. And you, if, you, if you're a Christian, you know that's a great reality. Do we humble ourselves in this way? When we gather here, do we, do, we, do we not only find the comfort and rest in that our God rules and reigns, but are we overwhelmed by the majesty of God? Moses in God's presence fell down to his feet. Isaiah fell down and said, woe is me. Daniel was overwhelmed. Paul left speechless. The seraphim, the elders, the angelic host, all of creation bow before God. I don't know how to provide for us. Okay, look up here a second. I don't know how to provide for us the exact platform to respond in these ways. I'm just being honest with you. But it doesn't lessen our responsibility to try. I'm not going to tell you how to worship God. I, I'm not going to tell you we're going to do it this way or not this way. I, I'm simply telling you this, that if, if, if in a, the hour that we're together, and by the way, they worship together. I understand that worship is intensely personal, but here it's done together. There's some kind of crescendo that's meaningful to God in corporate worship. If we, if we, if you're doing church minus worship, then we're not doing church. And we're certainly not paying respect and honor to the one who saved us. Where is it in a service that you stop and you go, he's holy? You say, well, how are you going to lead us to that? I don't know. I don't know. You got to figure that out. I'll try to figure it out. There's got to be a place in our time together you go, I'm undone. God help me. There's got to come a time in what we do here that we fall on our face. Well, this, let's have a time when we all bow. I don't know. I don't know. You don't need my permission to do that. Okay? You don't need my permission to do that. I don't know what to say about that. There's got to be time we, we cast 
something of our life and worth at the feet of the Savior? I don't know what that looks like. It's, it's God, here am I. It's, Lord, thank you. It's, Lord, I'm overwhelmed by your goodness. It, it, just, it just seems to me that in this scene in Revelation, that no one's looking around to see what someone else is doing. No one's really concerned about that. No one's saying, was it too weird to fall down and worship God like this? Can, can, we, can we praise the Lord? I, I'm just telling you, I, I don't know how all of it looks. I just know there's something here that's got to be in our heart. And, and part of what we're supposed to do here is worship God. I mean, can we, can we at least do this? Can we try to, like when we sing songs here, because these people are singing hymns, and you see in chapters 4 and 5, it's all about singing hymns of praise and doxology to God. Can, can we do this? Can we, at least when we come together, church family, can we endeavor just for a moment not to be so overly concerned about our dignity and our, <laughs> I don't know, our image that you can't just let your, yourself and your heart go just a little bit to actually sing. I understand there's someone sitting in front of you and behind you. I know it's hard. I get it. I, I understand the limitations and the struggles. But it doesn't lessen our responsibility to actually sing to God. To try to identify. Did you hear Kara's song today? It is, that's, that's worship. Those are, at least they're words of worship that we need to try to identify with when they're sung. There's, there's, there's the word of God being read today, and, and at some point you've got to say, that's crazy and fantastic and overwhelming, and it's real. Yeah. It's real. And I'm going to do business with that. What, what are you casting at Jesus' feet? What do you offer him? What do you, what do you give him? There's going to become a day when you're going to give him everything. And if, if you're going to spend eternity giving Christ everything, what are you holding on to today? What are you trying so hard? If you're going to stand in the presence of God in an eternity, never grow weary and never less, you're never going to become underwhelmed by His majesty throughout all eternity. What are we waiting for? Today, I want to encourage you, try to get a vision of Christ. Try to get a vision of the majesty of heaven. We're going to stand before, before God one day. You all, you're going to see the four creatures. We're going to see the 24 elders. We're going to be part of the 10,000s times 10,000s of saints. And you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be praising God. We're going to be worshiping Him. So to the degree that we can today, let's try to infuse that in the time that we have here together.